Section 18 of Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leonard Wilson. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 2, Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section 18, Part 2 of The Dream Woman by Wilkie Collins. The Second Narrative, The Hustler Story, Told by Himself. It is now ten years ago since I had got my first warning of the great trouble of my life in the vision of a dream. I shall be better able to tell you about it if you will please suppose yourselves to be drinking tea along with us in our little cottage in Cambridgeshire ten years since. The time was the close of day, and there were three of us at the table, namely my mother, myself, and my mother's sister, Mrs. Chance. These two were Scotchwomen by birth, and both were widows. There was no other resemblance between them that I can call to mind. My mother had lived all her life in England, and had no more of the Scotch brogue on her tongue than I have. My Aunt Chance had never been out of Scotland until she came to keep house with my mother after her husband's death. And when she opened her lips, you heard broad Scotch, I can tell you, if you ever heard it yet. As it fell out, there was a matter of some consequence in debate among us that evening. It was this. Whether I should do well or not, to take a long journey on foot the next morning. Now the next morning happened to be the day before my birthday, and the purpose of the journey was to offer myself for a situation as groom at a great house in the neighboring county to ours. The place was reported as likely to fall vacant in about three weeks' time. I was as well fitted to fill it as any other man. In the prosperous days of our family, my father had been manager of a training stable, and he had kept me employed among the horses from my boyhood upward. Please to excuse my troubling you with these small matters. They all fit into my story farther on, as you will soon find out. My poor mother was dead against my leaving home on the morrow. You can never walk all the way there and all the way back again by tomorrow night, she says. The end of it will be that you will sleep away from home on your birthday. You have never done that yet, Francis, since your father's death. I don't like your doing it now. Wait a day longer, my son, only one day. For my own part, I was weary of being idle, and I couldn't abide the notion of delay. Even one day might make all the difference. Some other man might take time by the forelock and get the place. Consider how long I've been out of work, I says, and don't ask me to put off the journey. I won't fail you, mother. I'll get back by tomorrow night, if I have to pay my last sixpence for a lift in a cart. My mother shook her head. I don't like it, Francis. I don't like it. There was no moving her from that view. We argued and argued until we were both at a deadlock. It ended in our agreeing to refer the difference between us to my mother's sister, Mrs. Chance. While we were trying hard to convince each other, my Aunt Chance sat as dumb as a fish, stirring her tea and thinking her own thoughts. When we made our appeal to her, 
she seemed as it were to wake up ye may refer it to me poor judgment she says in her broad scotch we both answered yes upon that my aunt chance first cleared the tea-table and then pulled out from the pocket of her gown a pack of cards uh, don't run away if you please with the notion that this was done lightly with the view to amuse my mother and me my aunt chance seriously believed that she could look into the future by telling fortunes on the cards she did nothing herself without first consulting the cards she could give no more serious proof of her interest in my welfare than the proof which she was offering now i don't say it profanely i only mention the fact the cards had in some incomprehensible way got themselves jumbled up together with her religious convictions you meet with people nowadays who believe in spirits working by way of tables and chairs on the same principle if there is any principle in it my aunt chance believed in providence working by way of the cards whether you are right francie or your mither whether you will do weel or idle the morrow or go or stay the cards will tell it we are all in the hands of providence the cards will tell it hearing this my mother turned her head aside with something of a sour look in her face her sister's notions about the cards were little better than flat blasphemy to her mind but she kept her opinion to herself my aunt chance to own the truth had inherited through her late husband a pension of thirty pounds a year this was an important contribution to our housekeeping and we poor relations were bound to treat her with a certain respect as for myself if my poor father never did anything else for me before he fell into difficulties he gave me a good education and raised me thank god above superstitions of all kinds however a very little amused me in those days and i waited to have my fortune told as patiently as if i believed in it too my aunt began her hocus-pocus by throwing out all the cards in the pack under seven she shuffled the rest with her left hand for luck and then she gave them to me to cut we your left hand francie mind that put your trust in providence but do not forget that your luck's in your left hand a long and roundabout shifting of the cards followed reducing them in number until there were just fifteen of them left laid out neatly before my aunt in a half-circle the card which happened to lie outermost at the right-hand end of the circle was according to rule in such cases the card chosen to represent me by way of being appropriate to my situation as a poor groom out of employment the card was <laughs> the king of diamonds i take up the king of diamonds says my aunt i count seven cards for a right left and i humbly ask a blessed on what follows my aunt shut her eyes as if she was saying grace before meat and held up to me the seventh card i called the seventh card the queen of spades my aunt opened her eyes again in a hurry and cast a sly look my way the queen of spades means a dark woman you'd be thinking in secret francie of a dark woman when a man has been out of work for more than three months his mind isn't troubled much with thinking of women light or dark 
I was thinking of the groom's place at the great house, and I tried to say so. My aunt Chance wouldn't listen. She treated my interpretation with contempt. Hoot, choot! There's the card in your hand. If you're not thinking of her the day, you'll be thinking of her the morrow. Where's the harm of thinking of a dark woman? I was answered dark woman myself before my hair was grey. Hold your peace, Francie, and watch the cards. I watched the cards as I was told. There were seven left on the table. My aunt removed two from one end of the row, and two from the other, and desired me to call the two outermost of the three cards now left on the table. I called the ace of clubs and the ten of diamonds. My aunt Chance lifted her eyes to the ceiling with a look of devout gratitude which sorely tried my mother's patience. The ace of clubs and the ten of diamonds, taken together, signified, first, good news, evidently the news of the groom's place. Secondly, a journey that lay before me, pointing plainly to my journey to-morrow. Thirdly, and lastly, a sum of money, probably the groom's wages, waiting to find its way into my pockets. Having told my fortune in these encouraging terms, my aunt declined to carry the experiment any further. Eh, lad, it's a clean tempting of providence to ask mair of the cards than the cards have told us new. Gae your ways to-morrow to the great house. A dark lady will meet you at the gate, and she'll have a hand in getting ye the groom's place with all the gratifications and perquisites appertaining to the same. And maybe, when your pocket's full of money, you'll no be forgetting your aunt chance, maintaining her ain unblemished widowhood, with providence assisting, on thirty pounds a year. I promised to remember my aunt Chance, who had the defect, by the way, of being a terribly greedy person after money, on the next happy occasion when my poor empty pockets were to be filled at last. This done, I looked to my mother. She had agreed to take her sister for umpire between us, and her sister had given it in my favor. She raised no more objections. Silently she got on her feet and kissed me and sighed bitterly, and so left the room. My aunt Chance shook her head. I doubt, Francie, your poor mother has but a heathen notion of the virtue of the cards. By daylight the next morning I set forth on my journey. I looked back at the cottage as I opened the garden gate. At one window was my mother, with her handkerchief to her eyes. At the other stood my aunt Chance, holding up the Queen of Spades, by way of encouraging me at starting. I waved my hands to both of them in token of farewell, and stepped out briskly into the road. It was then the last day of February. Be pleased to remember, in connection with this, that the first of March was the day, and two o'clock in the morning the hour of my birth. Now you know how I came to leave home. The next thing is to tell what happened on the journey. I reached the great house in reasonably good time, considering the distance. At the very first trial of it, the prophecy of the cards turned out to be wrong. The person who met me at the lodge gate was not a dark woman, in fact, not a woman at all, but a boy. 
he directed me on the way to the servants' offices, and there again the cards were all wrong. I encountered not one woman, but three, and not one of the three was dark. I have stated that I am not superstitious, and I have told the truth. But I must own that I did feel a certain fluttering at the heart when I made my bow to the steward, and told him what business had brought me to the house. His answer completed the discomfiture of Aunt Chance's fortune-telling. The ill-luck still pursued me. That very morning another man had applied for the groom's place, and had got it. I swallowed my disappointment as well as I could, and thanked the steward, and went to the inn in the village to get the rest and food which I sorely needed by this time. Before starting on my homeward walk, I made some inquiries at the inn, and ascertained that I might save a few miles on my return by following a new road. Furnished with full instructions, several times repeated, as to the various turnings I was to take, I set forth and walked on till the evening with only one stoppage for bread and cheese. Just as it was getting toward dark, the rain came on, and the wind began to rise, and I found myself, to make matters worse, in the part of the country with which I was entirely unacquainted, though I guessed myself to be some fifteen miles from home. The first house I found to inquire at was a lonely roadside inn, standing on the outskirts of a thick wood. Solitary as the place looked, it was welcome to a lost man who was also hungry, thirsty, footsore, and wet. The landlord was civil and respectable-looking, and the price he asked for a bed was reasonable enough. I was grieved to disappoint my mother, but there was no conveyance to be had, and I could go no farther afoot that night. My weariness fairly forced me to stop at the inn. I may say for myself that I am a temperate man. My supper simply consisted of some rashers of bacon, a slice of home-made bread, and a pint of ale. I did not go to bed immediately after this moderate meal, but sat up with the landlord, talking about my bad prospects and my long run of ill-luck and diverging from these topics to the subjects of horse-flesh and racing. Nothing was said either by myself, my host, or the few laborers who strayed into the tap-room, which could in the slightest degree excite my mind or set my fancy, which is only a small fancy at the best of times, playing tricks with my common sense. At a little after eleven the house was closed. I went round with the landlord and held the candle while the doors and lower windows were being secured. I noticed with surprise the strength of the bolts, bars, and iron-sheathed shutters. "'You see, we are rather lonely here,' said the landlord. "'We never have had any attempts to break in yet, but it's always as well to be on the safe side. When nobody is sleeping here, I am the only man in the house. My wife and daughter are timid and the servant-girl takes after her businesses. Another glass of ale before you turn in? No. Well, how such a sober man as you comes to be out of a place is more than I can understand, for one. Here's where you're to sleep. You're the only lodger tonight, and I think you'll say my missus has done her best to make you comfortable. You're quite sure you won't have another glass of ale? 
Very well. Good night. It was half-past eleven by the clock in the passage, as we went upstairs to the bedroom. The window looked out on the wood at the back of the house. I locked my door, set my candle on the chest of drawers, and wearily got me ready for bed. The bleak wind was still blowing, and the solemn surging moan of it in the wood was very dreary to hear through the night silence. Feeling strangely wakeful, I resolved to keep the candle alight until I began to grow sleepy. The truth is, I was not quite myself. I was depressed in mind by my disappointment of the morning, and I was worn out in body by my long walk. Between the two, I own I couldn't face the prospect of lying awake in the darkness, listening to the dismal moan of the wind in the wood. Sleep stole on me before I was aware of it. My eyes closed, and I fell off to rest, without having so much as thought of extinguishing the candle. The next thing that I remember was a faint shivering that ran through me from head to foot, and a dreadful sinking pain at my heart such I had never felt before. The shivering only disturbed my slumbers. The pain woke me instantly. In one moment I passed from a state of sleep to a state of wakefulness, my eyes wide open, my mind clear on a sudden, as if by a miracle. The candle had burned down nearly to the last morsel of tallow, but the unsnuffed wick had just fallen off, and the light was, for the moment, fair and full. Between the foot of the bed and the closet door, I saw a person in my room. The person was a woman, standing, looking at me, with a knife in her hand. It does no credit to my courage to confess it, but the truth is the truth. I was struck speechless with terror. There I lay with my eyes on the woman. There the woman stood, with the knife in her hand, with her eyes on me. She said not a word as we stared at each other in the face, but she moved after a little, moved slowly toward the left-hand side of the bed. The light fell full on her face. A fair, fine woman with yellowish flaxen hair and light gray eyes with a droop in the left eyelid. I noticed these things and fixed them in my mind before she was quite round at the side of the bed. Without saying a word, without any change in the stony stillness of her face, without any noise following her footfall, she came closer and closer, stopped at the bedhead, and lifted the knife to stab me. I laid my arm over my throat to save it, but as I saw the blow coming, I threw my hand across the bed to the right side and jerked my body over that way, just as the knife came down like lightning within a hair's breadth of my shoulder. My eyes fixed on her arm and her hand. She gave me time to look at them as she slowly drew the knife out of the bed. A white, well-shaped arm, with a pretty down lying lightly over the fair skin. A delicate lady's hand, with a pink flush round the fingernails. She drew the knife out, and passed back again slowly to the foot of the bed. She stopped there for a moment, looking at me. Then she came on without saying a word, without any change in the stony stillness of her face, without any noise following her footfall, came on to the side of the bed where I now lay. Getting near me, she lifted the knife again, and I drew myself away to the left side. She struck as before right into the mattress with a swift downward action of her arm, and she missed me as before by a hair's breadth. 
this time my eyes wandered from her to the knife it was like the large clasp knives which laboring men used to cut their bread and bacon with her delicate little fingers did not hide more than two-thirds of the handle i noticed that it was made of buckhorn clean and shining as the blade was and looking like new for the second time she drew the knife out of the bed and suddenly hid it away in the wide sleeve of her gown that done she stopped by the bedside watching me for an instant i saw her standing in that position then the wick of the spent candle fell over into the socket the flame dwindled to a little blue point and the room grew dark a moment or less if possible passed so and then the wick flared up smokily for the last time my eyes were still looking for her over the right-hand side of the bed when the last flash of light came look as i might i could see nothing the woman with the knife was gone i began to get back to myself again i could feel my heart beating i could hear the woeful moaning of the wind in the wood i could leap up in bed and gave the alarm before she escaped from the house murder wake up there murder nobody answered to the alarm i rose and groped my way through the darkness to the door of the room by the way she must have got in by that way she must have gone out the door of the room was fast locked exactly as i had left it on going to bed i looked at the window fast locked too hearing a voice outside i opened the door there was the landlord coming toward me along the passage with his burning candle in one hand and his gun in the other what is it he says looking at me in no very friendly way i could only answer in a whisper a woman with a knife in her hand in my room a fair yellow-haired woman she jabbed at me with a knife twice over he lifted his candle and looked at me steadily from head to foot she seems to have missed you twice over i dodged the knife as it came down it struck the bed each time go in and see the landlord took his candle into the bedroom immediately in less than a minute he came out again into the passage in a violent passion the devil fly away with you and your woman with a knife there isn't a mark in the bedclothes anywhere what do you mean by coming into a man's plights and frightening his family out of their wits by a dream a dream the woman who had tried to stab me not a living human being like myself i began to shake and shiver the horrors got hold of me at the bare thought of it i leave the house i said better be out on the road in the rain and dark than back in that room after what i've seen in it lend me the light to get my clothes by and tell me what i'm to pay the landlord led the way back with his light into the bedroom pie says he you'll find your score on the slate when you go downstairs i wouldn't have taken you in for all the money you've got about you if i had known your dreaming screeching ways beforehand look at the bed where's the cut of a knife in it look at the window is the lock bursted look at the door which i heard you fasten yourself is it broke in a murdering woman with a knife in my house you ought to be ashamed of yourself my eyes followed his hand as it pointed first to the bed then to the window then to the door there was no gainsaying it the bedsheet was as sound as on the day it was made the window was fast the door hung on its hinges as steady as ever i huddled my clothes on without speaking 
we went downstairs together. I looked at the clock in the bar-room. The time was twenty minutes past two in the morning. I paid my bill, and the landlord let me out. The rain had ceased, but the night was dark, and the wind was bleaker than ever. Little did the darkness, or the cold, or the doubt about the way home matter to me. My mind was away from all these things. My mind was fixed on the vision in the bedroom. What had I seen trying to murder me? The creature of a dream? Or that other creature from the world beyond the grave, whom men call ghost? I could make nothing of it as I walked along in the night. I had made nothing of it by midday, when I stood at last, after many times missing my road, on the doorstep of home. My mother came out alone to welcome me back. There were no secrets between us, too. I told her all that had happened, just as I have told it to you. She kept silence till I had done. And then she put a question to me. What time was it, Francis, when you saw the woman in your dream? I had looked at the clock when I left the inn, and I had noticed that the hands pointed to twenty minutes past two. Allowing for the time consumed in speaking to the landlord, and in getting on my clothes, I answered that I must have first seen the woman at two o'clock in the morning. In other words, I had not only seen her on my birthday, but at the hour of my birth. My mother still kept silence. Lost in her own thoughts, she took me by the hand, and led me into the parlour. Her writing-desk was on the table by the fireplace. She opened it, and signed to me to take a chair by her side. My son, your memory is a bad one, and mine is fast failing me. Tell me again what the woman looked like. I want her to be as well known to both of us years hence as she is now. I obeyed, wondering what strange fancy might be working in her mind. I spoke, and she wrote the words as they fell from my lips. A light grey eyes, with a droop in the left eyelid, flaxen hair, with a golden-yellow streak in it, white arms with a down upon them, little ladies' hands, with a rosy-red look about the fingernails. Did you notice how she was dressed, Francis? No, mother. Did you notice the knife? Yes, a large clasp-knife with a buckhorn handle as good as new. My mother added the description of the knife. Also the year, month, day of the week, and hour of the day, when the dream-woman appeared to me at the inn. That done, she locked up the paper in her desk. Not a word, Francis, to your aunt. Not a word to any living soul. Keep your dream a secret between you and me. The weeks passed, and the months passed. My mother never returned to the subject again. As for me, time which wears out all things wore out my remembrance of the dream. Little by little, the image of the woman grew dimmer and dimmer. Little by little, she faded out of my mind. The story of the warning is now told. Judge for yourself if it was a true warning or a false, when you hear what happened to me on my next birthday. In the summer-time of the year, the wheel of fortune turned the right way for me at last. I was smoking my pipe one day near an old stone quarry at the entrance to our village, 
when a carriage accident happened which gave a new turn as it were to my lot in life it was an accident of the commonest kind not worth mentioning it any length a lady driving herself a runaway horse a cowardly man-servant in attendance frightened out of his wits and the stone quarry too near to be agreeable that is what i saw all in a few moments between two whiffs of my pipe i stopped the horse at the edge of the quarry and got myself a little hurt by the shaft of the chaise but that didn't matter the lady declared i had saved her life and her husband coming with her to our cottage the next day took me into his service then and there the lady happened to be of a dark complexion and it may amuse you to hear that my aunt's chance instantly pitched on that circumstance as a means of saving the credit of the cards here was the promise of the queen of spades performed to the very letter by means of a dark woman just as my aunt had told me in the time to come francis beware of putting your ain blinded interpretation on the cards you're already i trow to murmur under a dispensation of providence that ye cannot fathom like the israelites of old i'll say de mair to ye maybe when the money's powerin into your pockets you'll no forget your aunt chance left like a sparrow on the housetop with a small annuity of thirty pounds a year i remained in my situation at the west end of london until the spring of the new year about that time my master's health failed the doctors ordered him away to foreign parts and the establishment was broken up but the turn in my luck still held good when i left my place i left it thanks to the generosity of my kind master with a yearly allowance granted to me in remembrance of the day when i had saved my mistress's life for the future i could go back to service or not as i pleased my little income was enough to support my mother and myself my master and mistress left england toward the end of february certain matters of business to do for them detained me in london until the last day of the month i was only able to leave for our village by the evening train to keep my birthday with my mother as usual it was bedtime when i got to the cottage and i was sorry to find that she was far from well to make matters worse she had finished her bottle of medicine on the previous day and had omitted to get it replenished as the doctor had strictly directed he dispensed his own medicines and i offered to go and knock him up she refused to let me do this and after giving me my supper sent me away to my bed i fell asleep for a little and woke again my mother's bedchamber was next to mine i heard my aunt chance's heavy footsteps going to and fro in the room and suspecting something wrong knocked at the door my mother's pains had returned upon her there was a serious necessity for relieving her sufferings as speedily as possible i put on my clothes and ran off with the medicine bottle in my hand to the other end of the village where the doctor lived the church clock chimed the quarter to two on my birthday just as i reached his house one ring of the night bell brought him to his bedroom window to speak to me he told me to wait and he would let me in at the surgery door i noticed while i was waiting that the night was wonderfully fair and warm for the time of year 
the old stone quarry where the carriage accident had happened was within view the moon in the clear heavens slid it up almost as bright as day in a minute or two the doctor left me into the surgery i closed the door noticing that he had left his room very lightly clad he kindly pardoned my mother's neglect of his directions and set to work at once at compounding the medicine we were both intent on the bottle he filling it and i holding the light when we heard the surgery door suddenly opened from the street who could possibly be up and about in our quiet village at the second hour of the morning the person who opened the door appeared within range of the light of the candle to complete our amazement the person proved to be a woman she walked up to the counter and standing side by side with me lifted her veil at the moment when she showed her face i heard the church clock strike two she was a stranger to me and a stranger to the doctor she was also beyond all comparison the most beautiful woman i have ever seen in my life i saw the light under the door she said i want some medicine she spoke quite composedly as if there was nothing at all extraordinary in her being out in the village at two in the morning and following me into the surgery to ask for medicine the doctor stared at her as if he suspected his own eyes of deceiving him who are you he asked how do you come to be wandering about at this time in the morning she paid no heed to his questions she only told him coolly what she wanted i have got a bad toothache i want a bottle of laudanum the doctor recovered himself when she asked for the laudanum he was on his own ground you know when it came to a matter of laudanum and he spoke to her smartly enough this time oh you have got the toothache have you let me look at the tooth she shook her head and laid the two-shilling piece on the counter i won't trouble you to look at the tooth she said there is the money let me have the laudanum if you please the doctor put the two-shilling piece back again in her hand i don't sell laudanum to strangers he answered if you are in any distress of body or mind that is another matter i shall be glad to help you she put the money back in her pocket you can't help me she said as quietly as ever good morning with that she opened the surgery door to go out again into the street so far i had not spoken a word on my side i had stood with the candle in my hand not knowing i was holding it with my eyes fixed on her with my mind fixed on her like a man bewitched her looks betrayed even more plainly than her words her resolution in one way or another to destroy herself when she opened the door in my alarm at what might happen i found the use of my tongue stop i cried out wait for me i want to speak to you before you go away she lifted her eyes with a look of careless surprise and a mocking smile on her lips what can you have to say to me she stopped and laughed to herself oh why not she said i have got nothing to do and nowhere to go she turned back a step and nodded to me you're a strange man i think i'll humor you i'll wait outside the door of the surgery closed on her she was gone i am ashamed to own what happened next the only excuse for me is that i was really and truly a man bewitched 
I turned me round to follow her out, without once thinking of my mother. The doctor stopped me. Don't forget the medicine, he said. And if you will take my advice, don't trouble yourself about that woman. Rouse up the constable. It's his business to look after her, not yours. I held out my hand for the medicine in silence. I was afraid I should fail in respect if I trusted myself to answer him. He must have seen, as I saw, that she wanted the laudanum to poison herself. He had, to my mind, taken a very heartless view of the matter. I just thanked him when he gave me the medicine and went out. She was waiting for me as she had promised, walking slowly to and fro, a tall, graceful, solitary figure in the bright moonbeams. They shed over her fair complexion, her bright golden hair, her large gray eyes, just the light that suited them best. She looked hardly mortal when she first turned to speak to me. Well, she said, and what do you want? In spite of my pride, or my shyness, or my better sense, whichever it might be, all my heart went out to her in a moment. I caught hold of her by the hands, and owned what was in my thoughts as freely as if I had known her for half a lifetime. "'You mean to destroy yourself,' I said, "'and I mean to prevent you from doing it. "'If I follow you about all night, "'I'll prevent you from doing it.' She laughed. "'You saw yourself that he wouldn't sell me the laudanum. "'Do you really care whether I live or die?' She squeezed my hands gently as she put the question. Her eyes searched mine with a languid, lingering look in them that ran through me like fire. My voice died away on my lips. I couldn't answer her. She understood without my answering. You have given me a fancy for living by speaking kindly to me, she said. Kindness has a wonderful effect on women, and dogs, and other domestic animals. It is only men who are superior to kindness. Make your mind easy. I promise to take as much care of myself as if I was the happiest woman living. Don't let me keep you here out of your bed. Now, which way are you going? Miserable wretch that I was, I had forgotten my mother, with the medicine in my hand. I, I am going home, I said. Well, where are you staying? At the inn? She laughed her bitter laugh and pointed to the stone quarry. There is my inn for tonight, she said. When I got tired of walking about, I rested there. We walked on together on my way home. I took the liberty of asking her if she had any friends. I thought I had one friend left, she said, or you would never have met me in this place. It turns out I was wrong. My friend's door was closed in my face some hours since. My friend's servants threatened me with the police. I had nowhere else to go after trying my luck in your neighborhood, and nothing left but my two-shilling piece and these rags on my back. What respectable innkeeper would take me into his house? I walked about wondering how I could find my way out of the world without disfiguring myself and without suffering much pain. You have no river in these parts. I didn't see any way out of the world till I heard you ringing at the doctor's house. I got a glimpse at the bottles in the surgery when he let you in, and I thought of the laudanum directly. What were you doing there? Who is the medicine for? Your wife? 
I am not married. She laughed again. Not married. If I was a little better dressed, there might be a chance for me. Where do you live, here? We had arrived by this time at my mother's door. She held out her hand to say good-bye. Houseless and homeless as she was, she never asked me to give her a shelter for the night. It was my proposal that she should rest under my roof, unknown to my mother and my aunt. Our kitchen was built out of the back of the cottage. She might remain there unseen and unheard until the household was astir in the morning. I led her into the kitchen and set a chair for her by the dying embers of the fire. I dare say I was to blame, shamefully to blame, if you like. I only wonder what you would have done in my place. On your word of honor as a man, would you have let that beautiful creature wander back to the shelter of the stone quarry like a stray dog? God help the woman who is foolish enough to trust and love you, if you would have done that. I left her by the fire and went to my mother's room. End of section 18, part 2 of The Dream Woman, reading by Leonard Wilson of Springfield, Ohio.